Let's be just quiet for a few minutes. Thank you, Creator God, that you are with us day by day, today and every day. Amen. Well, today I'm going to share with you my spiritual journey, my search for God. I'd like to begin with my favorite quote from the Persian mystic Rumi. And I know many of you know this. Out beyond ideas of right doing and wrong doing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. Out beyond ideas of right doing and wrong doing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. As I tell you my story, I'll be sharing what I've found to be true for me. If some of what I say doesn't ring true for you, that's perfectly fine. Just set it aside and join me in that field beyond our ideas of what's right and what's wrong. I've always been a seeker. The French mathematician René Descartes said, if you would be a real seeker after truth, it is necessary that at least once in your life you doubt as far as possible all things. I'll read that again. If you would be a real seeker after truth, it is necessary that at least once in your life you doubt as far as possible all things. Well, I've had my share of doubts in my quest to understand the nature of God and who Jesus was. And these doubts used to give me a lot of angst. But I've come to feel over time that it's not a bad thing to doubt and to question. In fact, I now believe that having doubts and questions is a good way to discover what's true for ourselves as spiritual beings having a human experience, to quote Teilhard de Chardin. Rod Romney wrote about being a seeker in his little book, Love Without Conditions. And there's actually a copy in the bookstore. I'm very excited about that. It's not the one that I owned, though. <laughs> this little book eased my mind about my doubts and questions and opened for me a whole new way of thinking about God and Jesus. It had a huge influence on who I am today. In the book, Rod describes what he calls the true believer, the person who takes the Bible literally and holds dogmatic beliefs. Then he describes a different seeker, whom he calls the poor believer. This passage perfectly describes how I felt when I read it, and I was so grateful to Rod for using the feminine pronoun in this passage. Rod wrote, The poor believer is one who can kneel at the feet of Jesus and confess, I believe, help thou my unbelief. She knows that the ground upon which she walks in following Jesus is alive with possibility, yet fraught with mystery. No interpretation of Jesus has ever answered all her questions. So she has had to live out her questions in openness, wonder, and gratitude. 
For her, Jesus is not a figure to be enshrined or particularized by definition. Rather, he is a figure who stands deep within history and deep within herself, a figure calling for her silent attention and her willing openness." End quote. Before I expand on how these ideas helped me in my spiritual development, let me give you a little background on myself. I grew up in the church. I was baptized in a Lutheran church and confirmed in an Episcopalian church. It seems to me that my parents didn't have a strong affiliation with any one denomination. They just went where they felt most comfortable. The most important event in my spiritual upbringing as a child was when my parents brought me to Windy CFO with my brother and sister for the very first time. I was 11 years old. And while my parents dutifully took us to church every Sunday and Sunday school, Winnie is where I experienced God's love. I've never been a good Bible reader. As a child, I felt it was important for me to read the Bible, and I tried. I even tried reading it from cover to cover. But it didn't really do anything for me at that time. The Old Testament was boring and confusing and full of wars. Most of the New Testament didn't really speak to me either. Because I made Bible reading a self-imposed chore, it was not a successful strategy for me to learn about God and Jesus. And I had trouble with some of what I read in the Bible and heard in church. I could never understand the concept of hell or the separation of the sheep from the goats. For me, that was not consistent with the notion of a loving God and my view of Jesus as a great healer and shepherd. In one of Marcus Borg's books, he writes that he has been searching for Jesus his whole life. Well, that describes me well, too. I had this strong need to understand Jesus and God and how to live as an authentic Christian. But I wasn't getting the answers I was seeking from the church or the Bible, and there always seemed to be something holding me back. When I was thinking about college, I decided to major in religion, and I went to Drew University, a Methodist school in New Jersey. This was part of my ongoing search for God and for the meaning of religion in my life. Of course, most academic religious studies are really about church history and theology. While I enjoyed my classes, they didn't really give me what I was looking for. In my sophomore year, one of my religion professors gave us an assignment to convey our concept of God in an artistic form. I wrote a poem that I've kept all these years. After I retired from my job this spring, I started cleaning out my desk at home. I knew that poem was in there somewhere, but I hadn't read it in years. Well, I found it. And I'm amazed by how well it describes my current concept of God. So if you'll bear with me, I want to read excerpts from this college paper, which includes an introduction and then the poem. And as I said, this describes well how I view God today. And it was written as an academic paper when I was 20 years old. Here's the introduction. God is a mystery. God cannot be completely understood by anyone. We are all on different, different levels of realization of the same God which means that an understanding which is right for one person 
is not necessarily right for another person. No one understanding encompasses God. God is wholly other, yet at the same time, God is reflected in existence. The world and the human mind are creations of God's imagination. This gives teasing hints of what God is, but we can never accurately describe God. God is the source and creator of the universe. God is the power, the creative energy, which gives life to all that exists. Our destiny is to get into harmony and rhythm with this power, to achieve oneness with the source. Religion is the means of seeking this realignment with God. God is the eternal, universal spirit of pure love, goodwill, peace, and harmony. Wherever these attributes are found, God is present. Because God is multifaceted and cannot be totally understood by any one person, there are many different religions. Each is an understanding of a different aspect of the same God. Humanity's approach to God is an eternal process. We grow from understanding to understanding of God. The different religions are different ways to God. Through poetry, I would like to create an image of my concept of God and humanity's quest for God. And now here's the poem that I wrote. On the earth stands a mountain, visible from every corner in which people dwell and dream. Even as we sleep, the mountain plays in our minds. Its base is far below the soil, beginning seen by no one. Culminating above the clouds, as we look up, the mountain disappears from view. Humans have clung to every side. The mountain is the center. Each slope has a unique face, the focal point for life, for a civilization. Each side is unlike all the rest, determined by the people who live there. The mountain changes color and shape in the light, and all our eyes are different. The great desire of every land is to explore all mountain contours and discover the secrets of the peak. Paths wind up every side toward this end. Discoveries along each path are suited to the climate. One side has different seasons from another, and each path has treasures of rarest find, never elsewhere present. The people on each side say that what their path reveals is mountain truth entire. They do not understand. The mountain is a diamond. No path can reach the clouds. They twist, turn, diverge. Each has many branching off. A lifetime spent in wandering will bring to light new paths. A path will sometimes round a bend, new path to meet and follow. Or, ending life upon one path, a soul will gain not clouds, but new life on another slope. Each mountain face has paths of truth, but only truth not wholly realized. To learn the secrets of the clouds, the precious truths of all around the mountain must be sought. That's the end. One way I sought to nurture my inner life when I was in college was by learning Transcendental Meditation, or TM. It was the early 70s, 
and TM was popular among college students and young adults. At the end of my sophomore year, I found a new roommate whom I lived with for the next two years. Mary was a meditator, and I figured the best way to be a good roommate to a meditator was to become one myself. Plus, I was curious to see what TM was all about. I meditated faithfully 20 minutes twice a day while I was in college, but once I was out of school, I got out of the habit. But I'm very grateful now for the discipline of meditation. In recent years, learning to sit in silence has been an important part of my spiritual practice. And mantras do help. I remember mine from TM, and I still use it every once in a while. After college, I found the church less relevant to me, and I drifted away once I moved away from home to take a job in New Jersey. Of course, I was still coming to Winnie, and this was still the most loved and anticipated week of the year for me. In those years, we had speakers like Norman Elliott, Mary Light, Joe Bishop, Ruth Robeson, Tommy Tyson. While I don't remember specifics from their talks, I do remember a feeling of being on a mountaintop. After a few years of living and working in New Jersey, I really wanted to get back to New England. I missed the ocean and the natural beauty. Looking back now, I also think that on a subconscious level, I realized I was not nurturing that spiritual part of me, and I needed to be back among my Winnie friends. How I ended up in Maine is a story for another time, but it was certainly God's doing with some help from Joe Hackinson. By 1987, Eric and I were starting our married life together, building our careers, and looking forward to having children. It was a time of beginnings, in anticipation of what the future might hold. That summer, Rod Romney and Barbara Deal were our speakers at Winnie, and the spirit began to move in me. Some of the gems I still remember from Barbara's talks that year. On a trip to India, Barbara had an opportunity to speak with Mother Teresa. And she asked Mother Teresa how, if she ever gets overwhelmed by the tremendous need all around her. Mother Teresa responded by saying, she can only help the person right in front of her, so she doesn't get overwhelmed. Another nugget that Barbara shared was that she and her husband Bob were working in a busy church where they had lots of demands placed on them. And they had a sign next to their telephone that said, God calling. Rod was an intellectual and one of the most loving and peaceful people I had ever met. He had amazing presence, and he could tell a good joke. Most importantly, he validated everything that I was thinking and feeling. He gave me permission to think of God and Jesus in a new way. This was when my parents gave Eric and me a copy of Rod's book, Love Without Conditions, which described the poor believer. I'm going to read that quote to you again. The poor believer is one who can kneel at the feet of Jesus and confess, I believe, help thou my unbelief. She knows that the ground upon which she walks in following Jesus is alive with possibility, yet fraught with mystery. No interpretation of Jesus has ever answered all her questions. So she has had to live out her questions in openness, wonder, and gratitude. For her, Jesus is not a figure to be enshrined or particularized by definition. 
Rather, he is a figure who stands deep within history and deep within herself, a figure calling for her silent attention and her willing openness. Several concepts that Rod described in this book resonated really strongly with me, and here are just a few of them. Karma, the idea that what we put out comes back to us. There is only one power in the universe, God the good. The importance of contemplative prayer. It took me many more years before I was comfortable sitting in silence, but it's essential to me now. While some of these ideas were not taught by the churches I had attended, I no longer felt that they were somehow subversive beliefs. When I had moved to Maine several years earlier, I had joined the Lutheran church that Joe and Natalie Hackinson attended. Joel and Patricia Hayden were the music team for the church, so I felt right at home there. In fact, the very first time I attended Trinity, I marched in as part of the choir. I'm sure there were many people there who wondered who that stranger in the choir robe was. After hearing Barbara and Rod and reading Rod's book, although Eric and I continued to attend the Lutheran church, I struggled a bit to reconcile church liturgy and creeds with my expanding understanding of God. And let me say again, I'm speaking from my own experience, and what I'm describing here is true only for me. I firmly believe there are many valid paths to God, and what's true for one person is not necessarily true for another. There is not one absolute right way up and around that mountain. In 1990, when Anders was a year old, it became easier and easier every Sunday to stay home from church. Anders was too squirmy to sit in the pew with us, and he was miserable in the nursery. In fact, at quiet points in the service, we could hear him screaming downstairs. <laughs> Always the attention getter, right? The other problem for me was that I could no longer say the creed. There were parts of it which no longer rang true for me, at least as I interpreted the meaning. So we stopped going to church. I wouldn't say it was a conscious decision. It just got easier to stay home. We didn't even try church again for about 15 years, and as a result, our two boys did not grow up in church as I had. I admit to feelings of guilt about that, but I also feel that certain, and sometimes in certain circumstances, at least in my experience, the church can turn people off to religion and God. Winnie CFO has always been our spiritual community, and we've been very active, so Winnie is part of our lives all year round. We had a prayer group with Joel and Patricia when our children were small, and we attended counseling meetings and retreats. So I do feel as if our boys were given a spiritual upbringing. And what we have in CFO-JFO is more than a weekly recitation of beliefs, which is how I had experienced church. Glenn Clark's vision for the camps emphasizes learning to live in God's kingdom right here, right now, to bring God into one's everyday life. After my mother died in 2002, I inherited her spiritual library. My mother was an intellectual and a seeker, and she read voraciously. 
Her library included a good selection of books by Glenn Clark, Frank Laubach, Star Daly, as well as Khalil Gibran, Edgar Cayce, Joel Goldsmith, and I think, Mike, there were a couple of books by Evelyn Underhill in there. Many of Mom's books were way too esoteric for me, and I wanted them to go to people who would appreciate them. So I gave Mom's Joel Goldsmith collection to David Hodges and invited a few other people to take the books that they wanted. I also kept quite a few. After we had gone through all the books, there were a couple of boxes of books left over that no one wanted. I stuffed those into a corner of our bedroom and they sat there for a couple of years. Through various means, including people I'd met at Winnie, I was aware of the Unity Church. Among the church ads in our local Saturday newspaper every week, there was an ad for Unity of Greater Portland. The ad listed the time of their Sunday service and also mentioned that they had a metaphysical bookstore and lending library. Well, I began to think that might be the place to unload those two boxes of books. So one day I called the church and asked if they accepted donations of used spiritual books. Yes, they said they'd be glad to take them. And in the process of making my donation, I gave the church secretary my name, address, and phone number. I thought of maybe checking the church out sometime, but I never really did anything about it. Then one day, I got a call from a lady who said she was my prayer chaplain, calling from Unity of Greater Portland to see if I had any prayer requests. She was sweet and lovely, and we prayed together for a minute or two. The following month, Roz called again, and she kept calling me every month to see if I wanted to pray with her. Well, those monthly calls drew me in. When I began to attend Unity of Greater Portland more than 10 years ago, I found it to be the closest thing to Winnie I'd ever found in a church. Eric and I still attend regularly. I like a lot about Unity. Here are a few of the things. Unity does not consider itself a church. It describes itself as a center for spiritual growth. Unity is rooted in prayer. The emphasis is not on what you believe, but on how you live, practical Christianity as a way of having a better life. Unity acknowledges that there are many paths to God. Unity does have one basic belief, that God is love and everywhere present. So here's the thing. I firmly believe that my mother led me to that church. It was her crazy books that no one wanted that resulted in the phone calls from Roz that drew me in. And here's the weird part. Once I was attending the church, I learned about the prayer chaplain program. The church trains a group of volunteers each year who take turns staying after the service each Sunday to pray with people who want one-on-one -on -one prayer time. Each prayer chaplain also has a list of church members whom they call once a month as Roz had called me. But the list is made up only of people who attend the church. I have no idea how I ended up on Roz's list. And here's another related coincidence. <laughs> Roz, my prayer chaplain, had an accent which I thought was English. When I met her, I discovered that she was from New Zealand. 
and had been involved in unity there and in Australia. Well, I happen to have an Australian connection. When I was in high school, a girl from Brisbane, Australia, lived with my family for a year as an exchange student. Karen and I have kept in touch and seen each other a number of times over the nearly 50 years since then, despite the huge distance in miles between us. We consider each other sisters. Karen's mother, Midge, was a unity minister. When Roz told me she was involved in unity in Australia, I asked if she knew Midge Berkman in Brisbane. Well, of course she did. They worked together sometimes. <laughs> in recent years, yoga has become a part of my spiritual practice. Yoga is wonderful exercise and it emphasizes the integration of body, mind, and spirit, kind of like the CFO program. Now that I'm retired, I've been going to four yoga classes a week. Imagine lying flat on your back with your legs sticking up in the air. This yoga pose is great for strengthening core muscles, lengthening hamstrings, and getting the blood flowing in your feet and legs. It's also a way to change your perspective. I think looking at things from a different angle is important. Changing my spiritual perspective has been liberating for me. My spiritual journey has been a journey inward. The Persian mystic Rumi wrote, Journeys bring power and love back into you. If you can't go somewhere, move in the passageways of the self. They are like shafts of light, always changing, and you change when you explore them. I'll read that again. Journeys bring power and love back into you. If you can't go somewhere, move in the passageways of the self. They are like shafts of light, always changing, and you change when you explore them. I'm grateful that this time in my life, I'm able to spend more time moving in those passageways. So here's what I've come to know about my spiritual journey. It's unique. I don't have to have all the answers. I don't have to defend my path. Neither should I either envy or judge another person's path. I am a work in progress. I know I'm on the right path if I can see the fruits of the Spirit in my own thoughts and actions. Freedom, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. To this list I add compassion and forgiveness. I believe that living a spiritual life is about how we show up in the world, our relationships and our actions, and believe me, I'm nowhere near perfect. The spiritual life is also be about being a lifelong seeker, being to, willing to explore that field beyond ideas of right doing and wrongdoing. Let's pray together. Creator God, 
May we always be seekers, pilgrims on the journey to see you more clearly, love you more dearly, and follow you more nearly. Thank you, God.